Season 2, Episode 8 of the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. In this episode, we're going to talk all about atlasing and why it's so important. I'll be chatting to Colin Summersgill, who will be telling us all about what atlasing is, how to do it, and how it will help you grow as a birder. This is a great chat with an experienced birder who makes so much valuable input during this episode. If you are coming on flock to Marion and are looking for binoculars, scopes, or any of the Southern African field guides, either visit our online store, the link is in the show notes, or drop us an email on info at thebirdinglife.com and we'll do everything we can to get you the best prices around, as well as ensuring that they are in your hands before you board the ship. So, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser Bird Logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Check out our website at www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our various social media platforms, as well as the other podcasts we host. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. So let us get into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast. Uh, so Colin, welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. It's good to have a chat to you tonight. No, thank you very much for the, for the invite, Adam. It's uh, really great. Good to be here. I just think it's so cool with birding, the people that you get to meet. You know, I just was... Before I actually came here, I was up there at the Golden Pippa Twitch, and there was a youngster there called Tom. Uh, he's think he started birding last year, and another guy called Steve. And yeah, it's just so cool the people you get to meet, and yeah, it's a fantastic, fantastic hobby to be a part of. So I just want to start off and um, just ask you a little bit about yourself, because there's people listening from all around the world and probably have no idea who you are. So can you tell us a little, little bit about yourself and also about how your birding journey started? Okay. Um... Yeah, father of two girls, happily married, um, started birding with my father who was a, well, he really only looked at raptors and corvids. So we spent pretty much every holiday in the game reserve, most of the most of the time in Mkuzi, so it almost feels like second home. Yeah, so I had quite a background of birding and sort of left it, but then sort of late school I really got into it again and what really pulled me in was the first atlas which now I'm giving away my age but yeah and it, it really taught me how to bird you know the sort of thing I, I'd do a list and then I'd look in the Digby Cyrus Natal atlas and wonder why I'm sort of a third of the way of what the the list in there was and uh, that spurred me on to do a lot of research about what I was missing and yeah that was pretty much how I got into birding was with that first atlas. So for us KZN birders, when we submit a report and a rarity is on there or an out-of-range um, bird, your name appears at the bottom of the email when it comes back to us. So what is your role with SABAP? Okay, with SABAP 2, I am one of the members of the Regional Atlas Committee, or the RAC. Um, you can find the, the sort of list of who's who in there on the website. 
And my role within the Regional Atlas Committee is to vet the out-of-range records. Now, I must just also point out that uh, the national rarities, like that golden pippet that everyone's looking at the moment, those go along to the National Rarity Committee, which I'm not on at all. And then here in KZN, we also have a Regional Rarity Committee. So for those rarities, I pretty much pass what comes in from SABAP onto them, and they have a look at them, and then whatever they say, I implement on the system. So it's really a, a lot around vetting. Um, I do help a bit with coordination, trying to get people G'd up with the Atlas. Yeah, and then we also have a BirdLife KZN forum that uh, we occasionally give talks to, you know, just to try and spread the word about the Atlas and uh, keep people updated with where we are with Atlas and so on. So that's pretty much it. So just for those who don't know, what does SABAB mean? Okay, so it's it's the Southern African Bird Atlas Project. It's now become more bird map that it's right across Africa. But SABAP essentially is the Southern African Bird Atlas Project. And the data all go into a database at the Percy Fitzpatrick Institute at UCT. And uh, yeah, it's used for various things. So I remember a few years ago, Hank Nell, who was the one of the developers of the BirdLasser app, I went birding with him and he introduced me to atlasing. And I'll be honest with you, before he spoke about atlasing, I'd always find it a little bit mysterious. I didn't really fully understand the words like protocol and all these weird terms that come up. And yeah, he took me out atlasing and that from that time, I was absolutely, absolutely hooked. So... I want to chat about atlasing in this episode because I think it's one of it's 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 something that I think will take a lot of people's birding to another level. Um, but it also has it also makes an important contribution to conservation, which we'll chat about as we get into the episode. But I want to ask you just to start off in the simplest terms you can. Can you describe what atlasing is? It's a lot easier now that we have bird lasso. Let me state that first. So you compile a list of all the birds that you see or hear, basically their presence in the sequence that you hear them. And it's within a set area, within a set grid cell. And on bird assets, it's basically staying inside the lines of a square. And if you're going to do a, what's called a full protocol card, you, you do that for a minimum of two hours, or else you would simply do it, you know, what you see in the time that you have available. So it, it's really compiling a list for a set area over a set time. That's all that it is. It's, it's nothing too mysterious, nothing too difficult. You, you've just really got to follow those basic three principles so i'm always interested i look i've looked at people those images of those big maps on their bonnets doing atlasing many many years ago and i think if that was what atlasing was about that time i don't think i'd be atlasing so bird lasser has definitely made atlasing a lot easier but tell us a little bit about what it was like atlasing before bird lasser came along well the first thing was that we did have lots of maps and you know i, I do still find the hard copy maps useful because they're really, really great for planning your trip through a pentad. Well, the, the grid cell that we're talking about is a pentad. So the maps are still useful for that. And then what we used to do, I won't say quite a stopwatch, but you'd obviously have to keep track of the time. And uh, you'd note down what you saw and or heard. And that was simply, yeah, I've actually, the, the kids laugh at me because I've got... Um, 13 A5 notebooks that I used to, well, that I filled during the Atlas. And they, the, the big thing then was you'd get home and then your job wasn't finished because you had a data management system that you downloaded and then you would actually punch your cards into that, capture them, and then have to submit that. And uh, so once you got back from the field, it, it certainly wasn't over. Sometimes, you know, the hard work started. And uh, yeah, it, 
Birdlasser revolutionized that. A lot of the guys, and, and they used to use that, um, were voice recorders, and they were actually quite useful because then you weren't distracting yourself with anything. All you were doing was just basically recording into the voice recorder what you saw, and then you'd play that back and compile your list from that. And that, that was actually very useful, in-field very useful. I believe some people still do that. So when we talk about atlasing and there's, they, they speak about that there's protocols that need to be followed, there's almost rules that need to be kept. So tell us about the rules that need to be kept or, or like the fancy word is the protocols that need to be kept. Essentially, you've got two types of protocols. You've got a full protocol and you have got an ad hoc protocol and they're very similar. Really, the ad hoc is simply if you don't have the time to complete your minimum of two hours. And when I say minimum of two hours, it, it should also be all habitats. So if it takes you more than two hours to cover all the habitats, you should take more than two hours. The idea is to... Um, record the birds in the sequence that you see them with the idea that if you have enough checklists and the higher up the checklists, birds tend to get recorded, the more abundant they are. And there's quite a lot of science behind that. There are so a whole lot of provisos that, you know, obviously you've got to follow. And then the other thing is simply that the grid cell that you use is a, well, here in KwaZulu-Natal, it's about 8, 8Ks by 9.2Ks. So it's quite a big chunk of area and you try and cover that grid cell as best possible and that's using roads um, any trails that are in the area getting hold of people who you know local owners and so on and then yeah just try and make your lists as comprehensive as possible obviously that doesn't always work so in that sense you then have ad hoc cards which are really valuable as well and you know if you if that's all you've got the time to do you know submit those as well that those data are all valuable yeah, and obviously the Bird Lasser app makes it really simple to do. I mean, it's just literally a matter of as you see a bird, you entering the bird and recording the bird, and it does all the hard work for you. I think that's that that was one thing I said earlier. How Bird has made it easy. It shows you the area that you that you got to stay in. It records the time and all that kind of thing. So it's really Bird Lasser is a fantastic app, and I think if you have it in your phone, it's just going to make atlasing super simple. No, it really does. It, it's certainly changed the way I think many of us Atlas. Um, it's become a lot easier. You can get your cards in a lot quicker. Sometimes I used to sit for a week or two or three before I actually submitted cards. And whereas now you get home, you've got a link, you submit your submit your data. So here's an important question. You know, obviously I get home, I submit my card and it goes into the system. Um, I can see it on the SABAP website afterwards like after a couple of minutes or a couple of hours, depending on how the system is working that day. But what is done with that data? Okay, so that there's quite a lot. Um, as I've said, it, it, it's essentially kept in a database at the Institute and a lot of these data are then used to produce papers. Uh, in fact, there's a, a very nice bibliography on the website which lists as papers are produced using these data, that scientific papers for bird research and abundance research and all that sort of thing. So there's a very nice list on there which gives you a very good breakdown of what it's used for. Now that there is a useful and large data set, uh, it's, it's become fairly standard practice that given the amount of transformation of our landscape that's happening, and when EIAs are done, uh, it's virtually a requirement. In fact, I think it is, is a requirement that um, the specialist consultants doing the EIAs actually reference the SABAP database for bird data, you know, so that's that component of the EIA. 
BirdLife South Africa and Ernst Retief, who's doing brilliant work, he's refining a model that's actually going to check, further use that data and further refine it, you know, for finer scale um, use in EIAs and landscape planning. There's also, now that we've got to the sort of stage that we've got, we started in 2007, so we've got a, a fair number of years of data. You, you can start looking at time periods and possible changes. And, you know, one of the first things they did do is compare the first atlas to the second atlas. And they ran through a, a few species and it came up with some interesting things. And I think the secretary bird was a, a brilliant example that, you know, people saw a lot of secretary birds around, you know, they're still around. No one really thought there's much of a problem. But when you look at the actual hard science and numbers behind it, the reporting rates plummeted between the first atlas and the second atlas. And that led to well, if you look at BirdLife South Africa, they have a huge project, ongoing project on secretary birds. And a lot of that, if I remember correctly, was actually spurred by what came out of the Atlas data. So it's also giving us a sort of sentinel warning of what is happening, what's not happening. And uh, and of course, the, the other thing is that your distribution maps and all your field guides, are a lot of that is based on what the Atlas is telling us or the the distribution maps from the atlas so what i'm always interested in is the orfs or the out of range forms that come back when you submit certain species so how does the system work out if a bird is out of range that's now become well it's it's for the computer it's a fairly easy process and that's essentially when you submit the data it looks at what's available in the database or what is prior data in the database. So you essentially get an out-of-range form if there is if it's new to science. So if you pick up a water thickney along the south, well, maybe not a water thickney, a wattle lapwing, that, that's a better example maybe. If there's no prior records in that pentad or adjacent pentad, it becomes an out-of-range. And that, that is a completely automated system. As you submit the data, if there's no prior data, it sends an email back to you and say, "Hey, well, it should really say, yay, we've got new, we've got new data here. Let's please verify this by, uh, you know, are you sure it's not just a typo?" So really, those out of range forms should be seen as a positive that you know you you're contributing something new to science, and that also becomes why it's so important to answer those out of range forms because. You know, especially as great as Birdlasser is, one of the things I find especially, I don't know how many times I've entered white-browed robin chat instead of white-browed scrub robin. And, uh, you know, the one's a common thornfelt bird and the other's a fairly restricted coastal bird here in KZN. So, you know, if we weren't doing some sort of filtering on this, it, it would demean the whole value of the database. So one should really see it as something positive. And it's not, it's not something that we're saying about how bad your birding is. <laughs> You're really trying to say how good your birding is, if you see what I mean. And then how does one go about um, filling those uh, ORF reports in? Because, you know, I've had people asking questions and saying they don't know what to do. So how, how does that, you get you get it back. What does the practical process look like of filling it out and submitting it back? Okay. The first thing is that you, okay, you'll get it in an email. So you can either just really reply on the email reply to who the actual person is who's on the on the form it'll say um please any vetting questions reply to whoever it is in kzn's case that would be me 
The other way of doing it and the preferred way of doing it is if you log on to the SABAP website, you've got to make sure that you use your um, email address that you initially registered with. You log on to the website so that you actually logged in. And then on your email, there is a link that says submit any data here. And on that hyperlink, if you then click on that, it should take you into the SABAP2 website where you've got a form you can fill in. And that form also allows you to upload photos. And um, while photos are great, you know, and often they're, they're really easy, they're not essential. You know, the bulk of the records that come in are actually done on description. So the, the trick just with this is to make sure you are logged into the website before you fill in the form. Otherwise, you, you won't actually get access to that form. And yeah, that, that seems to be the biggest problem most people have. So there's, there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. I know like we were joking about this and Tyron's part of the burning life. So I'm going to, I'm going to spill the beans. We, we got a, a wattle dapping a few weeks ago and his ORF report was, how did it look? It looked like a wattle dapping. <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, it's always quite a tricky one. And it, it, it's kind of discretion of the person doing the vetting and the person how well the person knows the bird, you know, and there's, there's certain things, how do you describe an ostrich, for instance, there's certain birds that you, you spend a bit more time, uh, what will that wing, you know, if you any sort of reasonable birder, you shouldn't really be mistaking it for anything else. So again, it's, it's, it's a little bit of discretion. But um Generally, with the more difficult records, you know, the, the less common they are and the more rare they are and the more difficult they are to tell apart, it, it, quite often then the, your biggest thing becomes what, how did you distinguish or eliminate other similar species? That, that's really what you need to look at the, the most, yeah. Just don't copy out of the field guide. I mean, anyone can read the field guide. It's, put it in your own words. Yeah, I know. I know. I had a chat to Jenny Norman about it. I know. I think she's part of your your committee, and she spoke about the. She's just was. I saw a, a, a corn crack last last year or the year before, and I actually remember seeing it. I, I think I actually saw it, and I actually I saw it in summer, but it was a little bit early on in the summer. Um, they're not normally back that early, and I remember you know she actually the advice she gave me was just write exactly what you saw don't try to put something there that's not there and i just wrote about you know the fact that i actually noted that the bird was there a little bit early i wrote what what i what i experienced that type thing and yeah on the card was accepted i think it's exactly what you're saying don't just copy the field guide you know rather write about what you saw what you experienced and i think that is that is what you, if i understand correctly that's what you're looking for with those orf reports that, that is exactly it you know you, you're looking for you know, once you get the RF, you're looking for the credibility of the sighting. And like I say, anyone can copy the field guide. But if someone writes, you know, it was a wet day and my feet were wet and I happened to look up and it flushed right in front of me and I noted as it flew, it had hanging legs, you know, hanging as it flew. Yeah, you know, you, you want to make it really as real and as, as authentic as possible. You know, you, you don't need to add too much gloss and glitter to it. it it's it's what you saw and what you why you were sure it was what it what what you put it down as and yeah you know the big rule is one has to say is when in doubt leave it out because one of the questions on the form is you know were you 100 percent sure and our initial instructions was with that form was <laughs> any record that the person wasn't 100 percent sure we were actually told you know put that record on hold but, you know, that aside, you also do want to know some of the records that are, are possibly a little rarer and a, a bit of a glimpse. You know, just keep it real. 
I think also just a quick question, and I, I was actually wondering this. Uh, I know there was another Atlas that I know quite well who was actually, he, he said he never filled this in. When you go to a specific Pentad, and there's that, you finish off and there's the, the card, you submit the card, and it asks you the question, there's two little blocks you tick at the bottom, um, was did you cover nighttime also, it's something like that, and the other one was were all habitats covered. What sort of would you need to answer to be able to click that all habitats covered box? Yeah, that, that's quite an interesting one. I, I have to admit that um, I err on the side of caution, and there's probably 60% of my cards. Uh, I don't actually put that I've covered all habitats because a lot of the time I'm not comfortable that I haven't covered all the habitats. And that, that goes back to – and Google Earth and BirdLasso is very useful now because you can look at the, the aerial – imagery and the satellite imagery and actually see you know sometimes you you get patches of indigenous forest for instance and you just cannot get there in any sort of reasonable time or manner or means and you know if you haven't if you feel you haven't quite got everywhere don't mark it having said that you know a lot of the time one is a little more thorough than you realize you know driving roads you do intersect forest patches and so on what you've got to try and do is just if you've made an effort and you're fairly sure that you've actually got everywhere, yeah, mark it as you have covered all habitats. You know, sometimes there are patches, for instance, in some of the, the rural areas, you get to uh, a farm garden, which is always a, a great source of birds, but uh, sometimes you can't get there because you haven't got access to the farm. So, you know, if that's the only habitat you've missed, you know, still mark all habitats kind of thing because, yeah. I suppose what I'm saying is, and I'm not really answering the question too well, but try and be as reasonable as you can about it. But then I got, then I suppose the flip side also works where, for example, you you go to a specific, you get people, for example, would go to a small park in the middle of their neighborhood or go to the lagoon or something, spend two hours at that place and say, well, I've called, I've done my two hours. Does that constitute a full protocol? If they've just spent time at one place for two hours, maybe they've moved around, they've been actively birding. Can you just go to one place for two hours and submit that as a full card? No, you shouldn't. You should really be trying to cover as much of the habitats as possible. So, you know, if the, a lot of the rest of the pentad is urban area, you know, your drive there, you're not going to see much more than three or four, you know, the, the sort of feral species. So I suppose you've got to work out what you've you've really got to do what you're comfortable with doing. But sitting at one point and only doing one point and not covering the rest of the pentad, especially if there are different habitats, that that wouldn't really be a full protocol card. Again, I suppose what you could say is you argued it is full protocol, but you haven't covered all habitats. But you know, we we get this question where people will go to nature reserve and they will bird for half an hour and then bry for an hour and a half and then they've done two hours but that's not a full protocol card because you haven't been observing for two hours and that that's really you've got to be guided by that as well so we've spoken about the importance of the conservation and all that kind of thing but i think just an uh, an important question as we get ready to close off how does atlasing help the birder because I know for myself i can answer the question but i want to hear from you i know for myself atlasing has helped me so much as a birder i've become a much better birder because i'm an atlaser how does atlasing help the birder i think my best example would be is is really how i developed as a birder you know starting with a father who really only looked at raptors 
And then I got interested in an Atlas project. I then looked at the lists I was producing and compared them to pub- already published lists. And I really looked at what I was missing. And that spurred me on to research all the missing birds. And I mean, I learned because you then go and listen to the calls, you read up about these birds that you're not seeing. Why are you not seeing them? Are you not covering the right habitats? The other side of it is you also, I find, tend to take a lot more time. And quite often the common birds, you know, you'll stop to see a dark cap bulbul, a good old toppy, and you stop to look at them. And, well, in, in certain areas like the Eastern Cape, you, you've actually, Addo, for instance, you've got to actually watch that, whether it's a Cape bulbul, red-eyed bulbul, or a dark cap bulbul. So you're then taking note of the common species. And quite often when you're watching those common species, something more, well, I hesitate to say more interesting, but less common arrives. And, you know, you develop, I think you develop a lot better as an atlas, having at, atlas. You, you, and the other side of it is that you also... Um, a lot of people obviously start on visuals only. And then one of the things, especially forest birding in South Africa, you've got to do the calls. You've got to know your calls. And it certainly, in my case, it, it gave me a lot of incentive to learn the calls because otherwise you, you there's a whole facet of bird watching that you're missing. Yeah, it, it really, I think, rounds you off quite nicely. Almost probably lastly, you know, for somebody who wants to start and they've heard this episode and spite to go out an atlas what level of competency does a birder need to have to be able to atlas? Oh, that's quite a difficult one. <laughs> in KZN, I would, I, look, in, in many ways, you don't need any, you need to be able to tell a hardy dar from an Indian miner. And, you know, don't submit it as a full protocol card. Submit it as an ad hoc card. We've got the fail safes. Um, you know, the ORF system will weed out what you're not, what you're not getting right in a sense. And, you know, that that's... <laughs> The best way of learning is by doing. And the more you do it, the better you'll become. And really, if you're not confident um, to start with, start off as ad hoc cards. Once you really get going and you get more comfortable with it, and you'll find you develop. I mean, we had a um, one of our star atlases in KZN was actually a, a, a retired couple from the UK. And so they were good birders in the UK, but they didn't know African birds, as it were, and they, they started off and they were doing cards of 20 to 30. And, you know, it, it took them about six months and they were well on to the KZN average number of cards, which at that stage I think was 56 per card. And it wasn't long where they were superseding that by a, a great deal. So, you know, start and see how you go. And it, it, it really, it, I, I just found it it's a, a brilliant development tool as a to develop your birding, basically. Um, so don't be too hesitant. As I said, we, we do have a certain number of fail-safes that if you do make mistakes, and we all make mistakes, it, it minimizes the impact on the database. So do rather than think of thinking about it. So yeah, like as you said, it's going to help conservation. It's going to help you as a birder. And I think, you know, for those who want to start, if you actually go onto the SABAP sites, I don't know if I'm going to get the terminology right. There's either atlasing mentors or atlasing buddies there's actually a whole lot of people there and if you want to start you know maybe just go and connect with one of those people and just ask him to give you a hand ask him to help you get started and i think you know when i went with hank and i saw him practically doing it it really helped me and i think just to go with someone and you can listen to the episode here all the the rules that you have to follow and all the the things that have to be done but when you go with someone and just see how they do it it's actually a lot simpler than we could probably ever describe on on an episode like this no, I quite agree. And that, that really is. And, 
you know, in my experience, all birders, well, not all birders, in my experience, birders are really great at sharing and more than happy to help. Um, our details are all listed on the website. So there are mentors and, and birding buddies listed um in most areas i think and even if it's further afield you know one can often make a plan and that as you i fully agree that's one of the best ways of learning is is by going out with somebody so colin it's been absolutely fantastic to chat i know it's been a busy week for you but it's been so good to have a chat to you and i just want to thank you for your time and yeah hopefully after this episode you're going to see a whole lot more cards coming from around south africa and just to say um if you have got any questions um you can you know get hold of um Sabab, I know Sanjo is fantastic at helping out. You know, even just drop an email at info at thebirdinglife.com and we will be more than happy to assist you and get you on the on the way to becoming a, a proficient atlaser. So yeah, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Only a pleasure, Adam. And if we only get one person extra atlasing, that's that's brilliant. It, it's really it's it's yeah, it it's a whole side of birding that um, you know, contribute so much to conservation, to bird knowledge. It, it's really brilliant. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much, Adam. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books Online Store to help get all the best birding and nature books into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comment section of this podcast or our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Bird Lesser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.